You're tuned in to RX Radio. Movement prescribed. Brought to you by Prescript.com. A personalized approach to keeping you healthy and making your best even better. Your hosts, Dr. Jordan Shallow and Dr. Jordan Jinta. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of RX Radio. Uh, excited for this one. Uh, one of the things I like to do with the podcast is bring on people that you may or may not have, but probably should have, or definitely in this case should have heard of. Um, uh, Michael Tucker is someone who's actually just got, I think he just got his first Instagram account like six months ago uh, after much social pressure. So Mike, uh, I met Mike at the San Jose State University. Uh, six years ago, seven years ago, um, Mike was the assistant in the strength conditioning program there under Gary Uribe. Um, Gary's a, a great strength coach in a great school with a great history around strength and conditioning, which we discuss. Um, anyone who knows SNC should know Speed City, um, which was which was San Jose State University. Uh, and we kind of reflect a little bit on how unique the strength and conditioning scene was in the Bay Area in our time there. Um, around six years ago we had him uh so michael tucker who is now the head coach or head strength and conditioning coach for uh villanova uh we had uh nicolini mike nicolini who's now the assistant strength and conditioning coach for the san francisco 49ers uh as mentioned before gary uribe heads up the program at san jose state max marzo was interning in sports performance at stanford university uh, Corey Schlesinger, who's now the strength coach for the Phoenix Suns, previously was, uh, I don't want to get this wrong, but I know for sure, men's basketball, men's golf, and if I'm not mistaken, at some point, women's soccer. Um, uh, Abe, uh, Abe will be someone, uh, the Blue Ox, again, someone you you might not know, but you will get to know uh, when we get back to the barrier. We'll have Abe, Abe on the podcast. Uh, the guys at Santa Clara University, um, then you're looking at as uh, uh, Mike Potenza over at the San Jose Sharks. So a really unique time to be in the strength and conditioning field in the Bay Area. So Mike was someone that I connected with uh, around six, seven years ago. He's now gone on to do big things. And part of that is his new program called Sprint Timber, bringing awareness to speed uh, training. So we go deep dive into sprinting, um, everything from sprinting mechanics, sprinting research, application, uh, on-field and off how do we bridge the gap we talk a little bit about uh, some of the research he's been doing uh, with ken clark uh, and in, in my opinion ken does the best research on um on on sprinting so uh, a really unique episode so guys i do hope you enjoy uh quick announcement on the bill paying side of things prescript online barbell course six week course is uh up for sale on the website www.predescript.com uh it's six weeks it's actually a seven week course as we sort of have this extracurricular course content video tutorial lectures um to go along with the live lectures every week so the whole course ends up being i want to say 26 to 28 hours plus weekly live labs which coaches get access to which are hour-long q a sessions with other prescript coaches so uh, a ton of value there registration as i mentioned uh live now next semester starts early october uh so you guys are interested in that do head over to www.predescript.com we'll have all of mike's stuff in the show notes as well uh on instagram michael tucker 
Uh, all the sprint timber stuff. Guys, if you want to get a background in how to program for sprinting, I highly recommend you take advantage of this opportunity. Um, Mike was done enough, generous enough to lend us his time and expertise today. Uh, so do head over to Instagram, give him a follow. Definitely someone uh, who I think is is just leading the way in a logical approach to applying science for field sports, especially when it comes to building speed and a culture of speed. Uh, he's doing a great job over there at Villanova. Uh, and you know I think he's someone that should be kept an eye on when it comes to what he puts out uh, in the industry, guys. So I do hope you enjoy. Head over to Mike's Instagram, say hi, let him know you found him through us. Um, and then, yeah, we'll see you guys next week. Your background and where, because I always like, I always like diving into the history. Like whenever I talk to like aspiring strength coaches, like I'll bring up like the Buddy Morris's, you know, the Charlie Francis, the Charles Poliquin, the Andre Benoit. And if I see someone who just goes like last side, like, who are you talking about? Like, do they have a YouTube channel? It's like, oh, bro, like you're not in this to win this. Because no. what I like about you with like the Sprint Timber is like your history and where you come from. If people don't know about Speed City, then they don't know about strength and conditioning. They don't know about, you know, especially in the field sports community. So, like, you know, your background at, at San Jose State and now with you coming out with this, like, I think that's it's such a good stepping stone because the more you get into sprinting. Because, like, I feel COVID, like, everyone got locked down. What do we do, right? Yeah. We can't train. A lot of people took to the track. And it's it's not necessarily – sprinting is for everyone eventually. Like – Yes. rate of force production i think is something that i want to talk to you about programming periodization um, injury risk management as a byproduct of that and how sprinting correlates to other sports like i see a lot of people that only sprint athletes that run fast or running as a part of their sport yes. but we look at adaptations made in you know just the astronomically like off the charts rate of force production like there's not an exercise that you can really get as much of that in a single bound or in a single session um then that's then sprinting and with that comes a certain level of responsibility so like when did sprinting i guess come onto your radar and i'm going to give you a full intro on the front end because yeah. i'm not going to let you downplay all your accomplishments and shit so i'm just going to pump your tires hard um but when did like when did sprinting first i mean because your background you were primarily so you, you came up, well, let me, well, you tell your story. Yeah. So, uh, so I played at Holy Cross. Uh, I played and coached there. I coached there like in the summers to earn enough money to um, live there, which was, which was really cool. So I got exposure training, middle school, high school, collegiate, and then professional athletes with my college strength coach. We kind of ran camps and had outside training of different, different groups. So that was where I got a lot of experience early on. And then I thought I wanted to be a football coach initially. Um, I got into, I got at North Dakota State um, right out of school. Um, got the intern there with Jim Kramer in the strength and conditioning. And then I went, well, I was the D-line coach at a small D2 school in Pennsylvania, Kutztown University. And during that time, I show up and head coach looks at me. He's like, all right, you're going to be the head strength coach too. And I'm like, wait, what? So got thrown on me and I, I'm like, holy, holy shit. Like where, where do I start? So got thrown into the fire and then spent two years doing both of D line and strength and conditioning. And, you know, you kind of couldn't be an expert in either one, right? I'm breaking down film. I'm on the road recruiting. I'm writing the training programs. I'm training the guys in the weight room. So not really an expert in either field, got a ton of coaching reps in, right. Which, which was a great experience. Um, and got to run my own program at 22 years old, made tons of mistakes obviously. So then I left there to be a Clemson University intern in uh, Olympic sports. So baseball and track. 
um, spent six months there. And then I, then I was at San Jose state and that's really where I think my, my educational platform kind of took off, you know, under the tutelage of Nicolini, um, you know, and that's where I got introduced to the Charlie Francis, the James Smith, um, the Bouchek Snader kind of that, that's where all of that originated. And then it's just kind of developed and grown from there. Um, and now this is my third year going into, going into Villanova. So, uh, just happy to happy for the path. Like everybody has a different path, right? It's always cool talking to different people and where, where they come from. Uh, I know some people who have accounting degrees and are in the, in the private sector. It's, it's, it's very different for a lot of different people. So I've been blessed with my own path. That's uh, unique. Yeah, the crazy thing is when we were talking briefly before this started, just about like the Bay Area strength and conditioning, that one, that three to five year period, and you look at where everyone's at now, where you mentioned Nicolini, you know, you were under uh, Gary Uribe. Uh, I remember, do, I, do you remember, man, this is crazy because everyone now is on these blue light blocking kick. And I remember Uribe coming out of his office one day wearing construction goggles. I'm like, this guy's lost his mind. Like, someone please help me with this guy. And, like, and he was telling me like about blue light and all this stuff. I'm like, he might as well be wearing a tinfoil hat. This guy is it was just so ahead of the curve, man. These things are bright orange and take up about half your face. And I still wear them to right before I go to bed to this day. Um, but, yeah, like you said, that, that whole – right? Nicolini slash TJ, there, there's a huge group from that Bay Area. And I was happy to just learn from as many that I, that I could and, and kind of be a sponge and soak it all in. Yeah, yeah. It, it's crazy to see like little pockets like that turn up, even as high as Sacramento. I know uh, uh, Ramsey's out in Kansas now. Corey's out in, in Phoenix. You're out of Villanova. Nicolini's at, at uh, the Niners. So it's just crazy to see like, you know, environment was kind of everything there. But I, I like just to kind of double back to like sprinting and speed work, and then obviously San Jose being like speed city. When did you start first implementing, or maybe better question is, how do you start implementing speed work with your athletes? Because I think at the collegiate level, it's 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 kind of like it's it's different for no one who's worked at the strength conditioning at the collegiate level, especially at a school like Villanova. I could imagine like you're you're dealing with just on unharnessed horsepower like you got kids with massive engines but no like no chassis like how is it like someone comes into camp let's say you got a freshman coming in how do you start to look at like beginning level periodization for sprinting yeah no that's a great question and i think when they first step on campus is a lot different than you know maybe their first winter session with you right because their first their first day on campus they can't walk and chew gum at the same time Right. Unless they're a track guy, they've never sprinted before. Right. You can pretty much guarantee that most high school programs in the country are running the gassers, running the, the, the repeat 110s, running the 300s. Um, I knew, obviously, Tony Holler is a huge name in the high school realm when it comes to, to speed development. So when you look at that, it's really like, hey, can they A march? And the answer is normally no. You see a ton of lumbar and T spine flexion extension. You see a ton of dorsiflexion limitations. There's so much almost not wrong, but you see so much, so many deficiencies in so many different areas. Um, and then just technically sound like, do, do they have any lumbo pelvic hip control coach? What's my lumbar? What's my pelvis? Like the, the ability, Hey, doing a basic dead bug. Like those are the very minute things that we kind of have to be like, okay, this is, this is your pelvis. This is how you move it. Like we start super rudimentary because at the end of the day, you have to slow cook them because you can't throw them into it because then when are you going to get all that, that uh, basic motor control movements down? 
Um, so it's a very slow controlled process, especially when they first step on campus. And the hard part with that too is like, I really look at the collegiate level as like your last, this is your last chance, right? Like knowing how guys get shipped around the league, especially now, man, like, you know, there's not many career, uh, you know, career starters for one particular team. Like their guys are moving around, they're chasing the dollar sign, looking for the big boy contract. So I feel like the university, you know, they, they might get a, a kind of a, kind of a loaded deck from the high school program, but you got four years with most of these guys to really be able to turn them over um, and starting. And I think a lot of people are, are nervous to start at that rudimentary level, like start at, you know, start bringing it to the floor. Let's see lumbo pelvic con- control in the form of a dead bug. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you touched on something there. People are afraid to kind of be rudimentary with it. And then the other end of the spectrum is people, you'll hear people say, Oh, we do the simple things really, really well. Well, at some point, adaptation is going to cease, right? So we have to start rudimentary, and then we have to meet the athletes where they are. That's all we're doing, right? And, you know, you talk to some NFL guys, and they, they'll tell you, oh, if they came from X program, like, we know that we have X, Y, and Z that we have to look for. Um, so the guys at the next level see it. So if your team, year four, that's senior, that's a byproduct of you, man. That's a byproduct of me. That, that's not a byproduct of the high school or anything like your, your athletes are a direct byproduct of the coaching that you provide and, and what adaptations that, that you, that you cause them to have through the stimulus that you provide. Right. And I think you put up a great post the other day, not to go too far afield, but it was about uh, basically the demands of like an average NFL play. Mm -hmm. And then you start to look at like, you know, some of these, what I would consider to be antiquated processes and the way we address sprinting and running in practice. And it's like, what remind me again, why we're writing like running one tens, like why we're running gassers, like why we're running these fucking crazy repeats when the average play is like 5.6 seconds. And like, I forget the stats on that post, but it was just like, Oh, okay. Like, I think one of the things from a programming perspective that a lot of people miss, because like, I, I know how a lot of guys get into strength and conditioning is they think interval training and repeated sprintability are the same thing. Yeah. I feel like that's something that like coaches come in and they go, okay, like we'll, we'll run, we'll run forties or we'll run whatever. It's like, well, even 40 yards in a game is pretty rare. Yeah. So what, and, and we kind of touched on this earlier, like Dan Paff over at Altus would be like, so a lot of coaches have a PhD in the weight room and they'll have the spark notes version of the, the field work. And so when, when you look at it, like an NFL lineman, what, are, what does he have to be really good at? Get in the way for three and a half seconds and create a hole of five yards. Like get really good at those two things and you have the opportunity to make millions of dollars. So when we look at that and then it's like, okay, to prepare for that, right? Reverse engineering sport now, 300s fits in where so understanding like okay we have to prepare them for the demands and i know one of the things that we talked we touched on earlier too was saying okay if we relate it to weightlifting right and you have a guy who can bench press 225 50 times it's not because he practiced doing 225 over and over and over. it's because he's the strongest dude right versus versus a guy who can bench press 225 10 times it's not his capacity it's his output so we're we're in the position as coaches to increase the output of our players, right? The best players are the best players because their output's the highest. Tyreek Hill, OBJ, these dudes who can fly, right, are really good at sport, not because they're the most in shape. Um, So that's why we take a speed dominant and sprint dominant approach. 
And I think the unique thing about sprinting, and I love that parallel, I've never heard it put that way before, is like, you know, we're training on the max bench, you're training on the output, not the capacity, right? And it's like in sprinting in a game, you might not ever see that max bench, right? You're barely ever going to get open field where you're running in a straight line and like you're actually able to reach that, that top that top output, that maximum output, but you're going to see a test of capacity. And this is why, like, I think people get lost in like the endurance versus output versus capacity sort of Venn diagram in their head is like, well, we run one, like we run these like long distance gassers. So when we're late in the fourth, it's like, well, how many times will you have run, let's say 10 yards up until then? So then do that, like do that instead. Like if you can move that max bench press higher, then the 30th rep is going to be at 225 easier than if your max bench was lower. And I think that's where people get lost. And it's, I mean, to me, it's kind of like basic energy systems or just looking at the size and shape of the sport. But it's crazy to me how many coaches still like ascribe to this model. Like, I guess, how do you address the idea of like endurance for that situation where it's like, all right, how do we use sprinting in conjunction with other programming variables to improve that fourth quarter capacity? Yeah, sure. So, and going back to that, how do you break down the game, right? Four, four to four to six seconds of play, 25 seconds on average between plays, right? And then it's 12 six-play drives. That's like average. So you got to get really good at six plays at a time, and then you get 11 minutes off, nine to 11 minutes off. But the, the key thing that we're talking about, and you said we might never hit that top-end speed or that top-end bench, right? But when you increase your top-end, when you increase that output – that maximal output when you're in shorts, a t-shirt and laser, your operational output, how difficult or how strenuous it is for you to touch a 90 or 95% decreases, right? So if you run a 4-4 and you go to a 4-3, running a 4-4 is not max anymore. It's a lot easier. So when we're in a game and helmets, pads, right, that operational output is decreased because our max output is increased. Um, so understanding that, that, you know, comparative, I think is really important. And then that ultimately increases the speed reserve, which Derek Hansen touched a lot on. Um, yeah. One other thing that you mentioned was volume, right? And how do we, how do we sustain the volume through the fourth quarter, right? And that's where we kind of go with the low, high CNS approach and Charlie Francis, right? We get our aerobic capacity up via low CNS work, whether it be extensive hops, tempos, extensive med ball work, and people discount, oh, if they're not drenched in sweat, like we can increase your aerobic capacity walking on a treadmill. Now, is that optimal from a fascial line standpoint? Like we can do farmer's carries, we do sleds. There's so many ways we can increase that aerobic capacity, right? But that's going to coincide with that high CNS operational output that we're doing. So the volume for the low CNS work, we really try and make unique to each position. And that's where coaches will say, oh, the GPS said a hundred you know, we need a thousand more yards. So let's go run 10, 10, 110s. And it's like, well, an old lineman might be in a quarter squat for half that and pushing in something. So how about a shuffle med ball chest pass or loaded carry or, um, you know, a sled bound, whether it be a lighter weight. So there's a lot of different ways we can attack that aerobic system to enhance our recoverability between those high outputs of our CNS work. Yeah. I think that's the hard part that people miss, especially when like you you have to correspond with player coaches that are looking at like unidimensional data like gps is really just going to give you one dimension right and there's there has to be a consideration of three dimensions of movement the dimension of time which is i think is always a tricky thing to balance and relay so with that in mind bringing it back we, we get the guys off the floor 
So let's, let's take a first year through four years of sprint progression because I, I get greedy and go like, oh, I want to talk to him about this. I want to talk to him about this. I was yeah. like, okay, wait, some people might not find this useful. So I'm like, I'm going to try and keep it on the route. Like, let's take one player from yeah. first year to fourth year out the door. We start them off at the floor, lumbo pelvic control. Let's go. Let's bring someone through. Or let's say, let's do this in a month. We got September. We got September. <laughs> We're trying to make this happen. How do we, how do we make sure we like we we pre-qualify these progressions from yeah. floor to flying 40. Yeah. So let's so let's go into our theme. So with that high CNS, you know, umbrella, we have an A cell dominant versus a max V dominant. So I took this straight from Stu McMillan at Altus, right? So on our A cell dominant day, it's gonna be horizontal dominant, it's gonna be strength power, right? Maybe quad dominant. Our ground contact time is gonna be longer. So less reliance on the stretch shortening cycle. And so when we do our max velocity dominant day, a little more vertical oriented, a little more elastic dominant, shorter ground contact time. So that's med ball throws, plyos, and sprinting. That's kind of the emphasis, right? So if you're going to do a heavy prowler, right, that's going to be on the A-cell dominant day. If you're going to do a super light resistance, uh, you know, flying, maybe that's on your max V day. So that's kind of how we split it up in, within a week, A-cell and max V dominant. And then breaking it down further, right? We can't, we can't just say, hey, day three, hey, you did your ACL day one, and now it's day two is a low day, day three is your high day. Let's go run some 40s because half the team's going to pop, right? Their hamstrings are going to go. So one way that we prep them for uh, the max velocity dominant stuff is we will attach that light resistance to it. We use chains. So having, you know, a, a 5, 10, 20% body weight decrease um, I actually just got some research done with Ken Clark because Ken Ken's a really good uh, sports scientist. He lives ten minutes from me, so we uh, so the two mass <laughs> model changed the game. The two mass yeah. model that Ken and those guys did to me, like with the force plate analysis. Again, I'm totally deviating, but like, if, okay. and I said this the other day in that post when it's like, hey, if you want to know something about speed. You know, Killer Mike's your guy and Ken's your guy. Derek Hansen's your guy. Like, if you guys – again, this is where it comes down to where I test people. Like, oh, yeah, I'm a sprint coach. Okay, tell me about Ken Clark's. Tell me about the two-mass model. And tell yeah. me about how, it, like, the multi-mass model, like, basically was all just, you know, muddying the waters. And really, it was the shank and the speed. Like, yeah, Ken's stuff is next fucking level. So, so Ken's got me, got me linked up on his uh, time unit analysis. We're doing load velocity profilings on me and just realizing how slow I am. But, <laughs> but I got, I got 10, like I, this is last week. I had, you know, 20, I had 40 pounds of chains on, which ultimately was like a 20% decrease velo. So we're, so ultimately I'm digressing. But when I get to the point is if you attach a very light implement and you are upright sprinting a 30, a 40, you get very used to that upright posture. So now you're exposing all the musculature to the, the demands of sprinting just at a decreased intensity, right? So, and, it's, and the intent is still super high and neuromuscularly, you're still churning as fast as you can, right? So it's not saying, hey, go run 80%. I'm running maximally, but it's a decreased velocity because I have a super light implement on me. So as we look, that, as we look up and down that force velocity curve, we want to touch all of that right? If you, if all the way velocity would be top end sprinting, you know, you take a little nudge down that force velocity curve, that's resisted sprinting. That ain't, that ain't, uh, hang snatches and power cleans, right? That's way down the line more towards force. I know we were talking like 2.5 uh, meters per second on the tendo is extremely fast for maybe a speed squat or a clean. That's, that's, you know, a jog. That's not even a jog when it comes to field work. So when we look at sports, sprinting's the most, you know, specific thing we can do 
from, from a sports specificity standpoint, but as well as just understanding the rate of force development is, is unparalleled. Well, yeah. I mean, you got guys hitting ground, ground forces like of a thousand pounds. Yeah. It's like, like you look at top level sprinters and it, and it is worth delineating. Cause I think a lot of people think that they're entitled to sprinting because it's some sort of primal thing. And we're humans. Like we haven't evolved in this day and age to actually like learn how to sprint. Imagine like, you know, to me, like, and I think this is actually probably parroting Ken's research. Like when you take like high level collegiate athletes and you take the elite Olympic athletes and it's like, all right, Olympic guys probably moving like 11 meters per second ish. Obviously if we made like a less, a sub, a sub 10, hundred meter, uh, you know, uh, your, uh, your good soccer player, fast soccer player might be going like seven to eight and maybe then a little higher eight, nine. Yeah. I think I was at like eight, so he's probably definitely faster. Okay. <laughs> and then maybe Gen Pop comes in at like five to seven ish, right? And then it's like you look at some of, especially like Ken's work specifically on like some of that force plate of like just the different force signatures in the way that ground contact is is created. To me, it's just like you know you literally need to. And then it's funny, K Star put something up the other day about technique driving your skill or sorry, skill rather driving your speed or the technique driving your speed. And it's like, you literally need to learn how to run faster to run faster, which is like people like, yeah, no shit. It's like, no, no, no. Like you need to learn how to strike the ground differently. And basically if you don't have this adopted signature, you're never going to be able to run 11 meters per second or even like nine or 10 meters per second. So it's, it's integral. I think when you talked earlier about like the basics and the fundamental, I like, Oh, we're like big on the basics. It's like, are, are you though? Cause like, that's the basics to me. Yeah. And so that's where we'll start kind of coming back to answering your question. Like yes. we will have, yeah, I know it only <laughs> took a 10 minute uh, detour. So we'll have a Dow on their back. Hey, this is rotational of your T-spine. We'll have a Dow overhead. That's, that's cueing your anterior posterior pelvic tilt while you're a marching, while you're a skipping, while you're doing slow high knee, while you're doing fast high knee. Hey, day one is not the day to go do a five ten five because they don't even know how to decelerate, let alone march in place. So it, it, it goes back like super rudimentary to that, right? Holding a med ball overhead and doing rapid uh, A march switches, right? One, two, switch, one, two, switch, right? And so a lot of people have run, but not a lot of people have sprinted. So I think you kind of alluded to that, right? We don't really know, right? Running versus sprinting, it's way different. And you talked about the four signatures of striking the ground, right? Ken's research is showing more and more that they'll exude similar amounts of force. A guy who's, say me and you are the same speed, we'll exude similar amounts of force, but who can do it in the first half of ground contact? Who can do it faster? So there's all these elements at play when we talk about sprinting. So just understanding all of this and, and like, look, I don't go up to my DB. I'm like, hey, you need to hit the ground. Yeah, hey, your, your foot's the hammer, the ground's the nail. I want you, right? I want you popping. That's it. So you have to be able to communicate it. But understanding like who, who these legends and these giants in the, speed, in the speed field are are extremely important because at the end of the day, like you can squat 800 pounds. That's great. But if you can't get off the hash, you are not playing. <laughs> You're not playing yeah. if you can't get off the hash. And I think, man, maybe even take it back because I, I might take for granted just like a base level understanding because like you talk about med balls and T-spines and all this and it's like understanding the desired outcome just from pure technique. So like break down, like let's break down the sprint from drive phase to max velocity. Let's break down like front side mechanics a little bit. I think this is something that really trips people up. 
um, is or just they don't realize like what the running mechanic should be. So when we start to use all these drills and talk about med balls and and, and a cell and max velocity, people are like, okay, well, what is what are we really chasing? What are we really after? And it's like, well, we're after proper technique. Well, what is proper sprinting technique? Like, what does that look like from off the hash to through the to through the line or through the red zone? What does it look like? What are we looking for? And that's a great answer because it depends like I can give you the universal and I will in a sec but it reminds me of um you know I I compared in a kinogram I compared our running back to our DB and you'll and understanding hey the running back has to make split second decisions repeated over time based off of others actions through the observe orient decide act loop right that's constantly going through his head so if he has a traditional quote-unquote sprinter stride super high hips, extremely vertical posture, knee up, toe up, right? Very front side. His foot is actually further from the ground and his hips are further from the ground, which is going to be a little more challenging for deceleration and cutting purposes. So I compared him to our DB. Our DB was a track guy. He's faster, yes, but they both serve the purpose, right? The DB is a lot more open space and needs to turn and open up with these fly routes. And the, and the running back is a little more in the, in the box. He's got to cut off the linebacker, cut off the safety. Can he turn it on once he's in open field? Absolutely. But having that short, that lowered hip height and that uh, center of mass closer to the ground actually may help him from a, from a change direction standpoint, from his foot being closer to the ground, he can stick it and then change direction a little, more, a little quicker than if you had, quote, unquote, traditional sprinter form. Um, so I think that's extremely important to kind of touch on. I don't know. If I don't you know what you're were in practice. Well, yeah. Well, my question to you, man, and this again, I'm just, this whole thing is just me riffing with you and I apologize to anyone else listening, but like, this is cool. This is so cool to get like the opportunity to talk to you about this. Do you in practice look to instate a classic front side mechanic, even with your guys who will have to make these continued split, just like split second decisions to drive the adaptations or is training them in the shape of their sport more beneficial and obviously you know they're moving quick if that's their position especially at the level that you you know you're coaching at these guys are are moving fast how much do we worry about the game versus how much do we worry about like the tissue if that's like a contrast that that i'm that i'm making yeah so so to relate it to that that tissue modeling if if you run backside and i never cue you on it right that's one end of the spectrum and you're going to be more anterior pelvic tilt you're going, your hamstrings are going to be more lengthened. You're going to be more like, you're going to be inefficient, right? So you're going to be slower and you're going to get fatigued quicker and the tissues you're going to remodel in a, in a setting that you really won't want them to, right? The other end of the spectrum is, hey, you're not going to sprint until you master this AMARGE drill. So now, so you have these two ends of the spectrum and one is injury, like both will lead to injury, okay? So you're not going to do this because we only do the basics super well and they're doing wall drills for a month and stick drills for the next month. It's like, you just wasted eight weeks. Like neuromuscularly, like they haven't touched anything. You haven't laid down any lines of stress and they're going to go into the game or practice and get hurt. The other end of the spectrum is you don't harp on mechanics and their backside and they're all over the place. And they're inefficient. And then that'll lead to injury. So it's really a give and take. How good is good enough? Um, so, you know, we take them through a rudimentary progression, basic, and then we want to get them sprinting like soon, sooner rather than later. Um, and what helps us with that intent, keeping the yardage shorter helps, right? So you stay a cell dominant, right? Until they continually get front side, they're allowed, they can get their feet under their center of mass in order to apply proper force. 
And then when they get up to that max V, that's where that comes into that light resistance. So now I can drive the intent. I can cue the, the arm action. I can cue all these different things, but I'm not worried about them pulling anything because I have that decreased velocity. So they're running at 85, 90%, even though they're intense at a hundred. So it's that give and take on that spectrum of, Hey, we're going to do this, the basic super well and only stay there. And then we're going to, you know, master the technique uh, perfectly. So there, there's so much at play, but in a, in a very rudimentary setting, if I can get you front side, I can get you applying proper force through pushing, not pulling, right? I can make sure you're efficient through your torso and you're not bleeding energy. These are, these are just very rudimentary things that we look for. And some of the common faults when kids, kids first come in, right? Neutral head posture. That's a big one. Guys think they're staying low and their, their chin is just, you know, driving into the floor. Um, and, and then the reaching is another big one. I think I'm moving fast because I'm reaching for it, but in reality, now your shin angles, you know, vertical, and now I have to get it back to, to, um, you know, 45, 65 degrees forward, whatever it is your starting points at. So, you know, I think that's a really long winded answer. We just kind of keep going back and forth on this. Well, how do you then take into consideration surface? Like if we're going to take this from beginner level, like, you know, like the idea of ground contact time really driving those adaptations at like you know the maybe like the the soft tissue level like not so much muscle maybe more tendon where like the longer ground contact time like the difference between running in sand and running on you know mondo is going to be considerably different in the adaptations you try to drive how do you periodize so like we got the a cell all right so here let's work on drive phase when we're in our max velocity like look we need to run we can't keep you on a wall and on a fucking dowel forever but we are going to garner your overall or, 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 or harness your overall output by creating a capacity by using light external load. So you're not actually going to be running with a speed that'll indicate your 100%, rather an effort or perceived exertion. Right? So here we have these two days, which is like, all right, here's drive phase, here's quad dominant, and then our, our maximum V day, this is going to be quick ground contact time, more upright posture. This is going to be kind of our, like, and I like the way that's periodized because in a race or in like, let's say we're looking at a hundred meter dash, that's the way the race goes, right? We're drive phase first and then we sort of transition into the upright and then we're max V through the line or we hope we're max V through the line. Um, so how is it then, what, how do we start to layer on periodizations of this model? And like, let's maybe start with something that I think a lot of people miss and from a beginner's covid sprint enthusiast they they people don't respect how we can start to periodize the ground we're running on first yeah so so that <clears throat> so like you mentioned right the softer the surface the more muscle dominant it's going to be the harder the surface the more elastic the turn and, and the more tendon dominant it's going to be so if you take your your team of football players and i you know i have guys who are 320 pounds i take them out and say all right boys get your flats on we're on the track we're running some 30s today, right? Their Achilles and knees are going to absolutely be shot, right? That is just not safe to do by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so we don't utilize a grass surface primarily because we don't have a grass field. So that would be like step one. And then we go to the field turf, right? And then field turf would be step two. And then track would be step three. So, you know, when we look at bigs versus skills, so you have your, your 300-pound guys versus your 185-pound guys. One's going to be a lot more strength dominant. One's going to be a lot more elastic dominant. So guess what the bigs are going to be a lot better at? They're going to be a lot better at pushing. They're going to be a lot better at A-cell, right? And your skill guys, depending on if they have a track background or not, are generally going to be more elastic, right? So they're going to have an easier time with those upright postures. So we have these two very different groups. And then our mid-skill, right, the linebackers, the running backs, they'll fall into one of the two categories. So we're mailboxing these guys, and that's a term I stole from Altus, 
we're mailboxing these guys in these different categories and like they're different faults that we're going to see. So now we're going to, we have to design and periodize kind of accordingly. So one of the issues I see coaches run into is, you know, they'll do tens one day, 15s the next day, and they got to get really good at tens and 15s, but you've robbed the adaptation of what a 25 yard sprint can do. Right. Ken Clark showed in his research from 2016, I believe it was, you can reach uh, like our base can reach 95% at 20 yards, right? Your skillies can reach 90%. And so just the 20 yard sprint, when you look at how that's going to affect the acceleration profile, right? A big doesn't run 40 yards in game. Correct. That is awesome. But he can now get up to the second level faster because his acceleration's faster because his max velocity is faster. So if you, if your max velocity is, is at a faster rate, it affects the slope of that line. So now your acceleration is faster to get up to that second level. And if we look back, this is um, Tony Holler. He went into how the first round of the NFL draft, not this recent one with Joe Burrow, the one prior, I think there were six linemen drafted in the first round, NFL linemen, and, uh, or maybe seven. Of the seven, six had the fastest 40s at the combine. So you look at – and, like, and like when I saw it, I was mind blown. Like, what? No way. Like, get out of here. And, like, so understanding, like, that it plays a factor, right? You know, we just touched on rate of force development, right? And now we're touching on surfaces. But let's talk about, like, hey, touch max V with your guys, man. It affects everything from a neuromuscular standpoint, rate of force development. I mean, it's so crucial. And, and that's something that, you know, I hang my hat on. Like, I love doing it. I'm a big speed nerd, uh, you know, so I, I've really enjoyed kind of diving into that rabbit hole with our team. So let's, let's build out from – so we have someone that's listening to this. September's coming up. They, you know, they're still locked down wherever they are in the world. All right, I got two – maybe two training days I'm going to look at or two maybe adaptations. I want to consider the postural stuff, but I do want to consider, you know, like you said, touch it and sort of max velocity at a certain point. I, I'm not going to spend all the time, like, on the ground. I do want to spend some time on the track. How do we start to layer in volume and then, like, max intensity from, like – and I'm speaking purely as a meathead here. How do you take that and now start to progress it? Yeah. Yeah, so when you look at – and, like, this is what I'll ask when I, when I kind of analyze or consult with, with different coaches. It's, okay, hey, did Usain Bolt run his, you know, 1,200 his fastest? And it's like, well, no. And then it's like, okay, well, is, was his rest a jog back? And well, it's no. Okay. So now if you look at how the, the elite of the elite are doing it, right. The Tyson Gay, right. The Usain Bolt, like these dudes are resting a ton and it's not that many reps. So a really easy rule of thumb for people out there is one minute for every 10 yards. So 20, like, like there you go. There's easy, easy applicable information right now. Like you run a 30, you're resting three minutes minimum. Um, and you know, what you really fight is anxiety and coaches kind of, you know, well, they're not working hard. They're not drenched in sweat. They're not bending over puking. It's like, well, that's great. If you want to get really, really good at running 80% and you don't want to increase the ceiling, like I'm after increasing the ceiling, we got to rest. I'd equate it to doing 50 jump squats before you go PR on a back squat. Like you wouldn't do that. So, you know, as we layer in this volume, right? So we start, start slow, right? short to long approach. So our distances slowly increase, our reps slowly increase. But, you know, when we're looking at total distance, like I don't really want to touch for a, a, a skilly more than 350 yards. Um, and I think that's more on the conservative end of a, of a session. So, you know, if you break down 350, like, okay, that could be 10 thirties, but we have to go into account of all the other, all the other A cells that led up to it. So it's the end of the warm up. Maybe you're hitting two 20 yard buildups. Okay, there's 40 yards. Everybody's gonna know how bad I am at math right now. 
Um, and then, and then maybe we did two or four resistance runs with the, with the chain, whether, whether it's 20 pounds, 40 pounds, 60 pounds, whatever. So now we're adding all this up. It's really not that many reps of, of max velocity work. You know, we'll, we'll try and stay three to four, maybe three to six on our top end stuff. And I give that range because I don't know how you slept last night. I don't know what stress is going on with, with your significant other. Um, you know, I don't, everybody's different from an adaptation standpoint with all the weight room stuff we're doing. Maybe that's taking a, a toll on somebody a little differently. Maybe you're a backside guy and your hammies are under a little more tension. Uh, so, Hey, you hit three. Great. Shut it down. But coach, I feel good. Good. Keep feeling good. Cause we're sprinting again in two days. Keep feeling good. Like that's awesome. And, and when you explain to these guys and give a lot of autonomy to them, they, they really appreciate it. Like what we're doing and they'll, they'll start to say, yo coach, I'm good. Like, great. Like, Hey, you, you PR today. We're timing you like you're done. That's awesome. So giving them autonomy is huge for that. And then, so from a basic programming short to long, we have an A cell dominant max V dominant day. We slowly accumulate that volume, but it's really a lot less than people would think. Um, you know, one to one to three reps at, at a top end speed is plenty. Yeah, I think it's a problem I see in strength sports as well is understanding the concept of working reps, right? Like understand what is like really what is a working rep? So in this case, like, you know, you might only see, you know, three to six top end where we're really opening up, but you got to think that, look, the, the, the lead up work, maybe it was the resistance stuff that there's accumulation. So like we kind of have a rule uh, and it's not when I say we, but the rule rule we follow with like barbell work is like, all right. 60% and over, this is going to be specific. This is going to be a working rep. 30 to 60%, this is going to be an accessory. This is going to be considered a half rep. And we have volume landmarks that we're going to try and follow given like intermediate uh, or a, a beginner, intermediate, and elite, right? So it's like, it's the same thing there where, you know, people might be warming up and they almost blindfold themselves or blind themselves to the warm up being a, a stress to the actual work. They don't count that as working reps. So next thing you know, they get to the track and they're running 15, 20 and they're not taking into consideration the volume accumulated even in like the half reps at lower intensities or like the three quarter reps or the full reps in the warmups under resistance. So like the idea of working reps or working volume, I think is something that people get lost in a little bit. And because they try and do, they try and annihilate rather than stimulate, right? Like, and especially with running, it's so, it's so viscerally tied to just fucking throwing up in a bucket Yes. Yes. Uh, stimulate, don't annihilate elite term there by you. Um, and understand, yeah, there you go. And, and so another thing, when you look at the warm up, is like, how do they, how do they look? Are, are like my skill guys, they're joke. They have to be joking around. They have to like, they're locked in. We're working hard. Yes. But they're jovial, right? They're happy to be there. If, if they're quiet, I know maybe, you know, maybe it's finals week, maybe, you know, it, it, last night was a Thursday, maybe today's a Friday and it's 8am. So maybe they're a little more tired. Um, so taking all these into effect, you can feel their, their energy one, go up and ask them how they feel. Qualitative research is just as good as quantitative in my opinion. And then you can like literally see and hear the ground contacts in the warm up, how they, how their foot strikes the ground, how their posture looks. If, if something's off, we might need to go to plan B or, or adjust, right? Hey, today was going to be, maybe we were going to get three reps in of a full point and three reps five resisted one resisted because you guys kind of look like shit um so so i think the warm-ups are a really good opportunity to kind of gauge your athlete's readiness as well which is which is something you touched on 
Yeah, that's a cornerstone of like sprint coaching versus sprint programming and you know coaching versus programming in general. I know a lot of people who are great programmers but have the awareness of a fucking dining room table. Like they just don't have like they're great programmers but you put that like you know like you 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 kind of painted this picture of like the inner city kid from Miami that probably, you know, can run a a four or five in his fucking brother's shoes, right? Yeah. Like that kid, if you put on, and you're in the Bay Area and you put on some E40 and he's not jumping around the weight room, like something's up. Today might not be the day. And I think people need to, because like you said, PhD in the weight room, right? And they're really using the Coles notes on the field. It's like, it, it, it's it, there is a distinction to be drawn from like the very tangible data in research but like the very real-time information that an athlete's going to give you on the day and i think football is in my opinion like football is kind of the cornerstone of strength and conditioning and the athletes that i've met in like the football space are usually like the most animated hockey players are this like boiled fucking potatoes man you go to a hockey weight room you're listening to like nickelback it's like fuck guys come on but like, if you start to see that, man, and I think it's such an intangible that people miss because I think the research is so cool, right? Like the fact that you can sit here and talk about, you know, all these different research findings and stuff, but still be like, hey, you good? You good? All right. Fucking cock the hammer, strike the nail. Go. Yeah. The, uh, the real world application is definitely like you have, like you paint the picture, right? Of the meathead who walks out there and is still in his knee sleeves. He's like, ah, uh, what do we have today? all right, let's, let's run around the field 50 times and then blows a whistle. And then you have the, the computer lab nerd who, you know, is sitting behind his computer and can't communicate with the athlete, the coaching cues. So, like, we don't want to be either of those guys. We need to be able to take the data and actionably, actionably implement it in a way that's going to fit you and your athlete's needs, right? right. So that's implementation as well as cueing. I know Nick, Nick Winkleman's done a ton of stuff on external versus internal cues. His book, Language of Coaching, was awesome, like – we have to be able to relate to these dudes and be able to tell them. Right. And then like that 300 pounder, he ain't going to be the same cat as the 185. So you better have a different plan for him. Right. And they're both different than a 235 pound yoked up LB who can still scoot. Okay. So you have these three different beasts in your, in, in your weight room and on your field and they're doing the same stuff for whatever reason. I look at programs and I'm like, why? And then they say, oh, well, sports specificity is bullshit and all that. A DB has to backpedal seven yards, turn, flip his hips, and run 30. An O-lineman has to push somebody five. They're totally different sports. They, work, they, they walk on the same field, but they're different sports. I wanted to talk a little bit now on periodization and around like depreciation of performance being an indicator, you know, like say subjectively, everything's looking good, right? Like rather subjectively, everything's feeling good. Like guys are, guys are up. They're well rested. You've got a sprint session. You're in part of a program that's really calling for some like max V stuff. Like the way, the way we look at periodizing or I look at periodizing around a barbell time distance and load. Right. That's kind of like the indicators. Once technical proficiencies are cleaned up, we kind of define what failure is. A, a novice failure might look more like a technical failure. An advanced is going to be some sort of breakdown of capacity or power. Right. So that's how we kind of look longitudinally at assessments and strength, or how I look longitudinally at assessments of strength. But I look at bar speed as a big indicator of accumulation of accumulation of fatigue. Now I don't. I'm not big on tendo units. To me, I can kind of do it subjectively. Like an athlete might feel that bar move slow. I'm looking at it like you, you got five, ten more kilos, or we're going to go and hit the prescribed volume for another set. Um, rarely do I drop intensity as a means 
of, of, of sort of deloading or hitting the intended mark, I'll just drop volume. How do you use with, a, you know, with, you know, time gates and things like that and the technology around strength and conditioning and sprinting, how would you use depreciation of performance to monitor and gauge volume and fatigue? Yeah, that's a really good question. And then it comes down to what can you apply in a really good setting? So we do use just jump mats a lot for like readiness and, and we'll utilize those guys a couple times a week. And we, we don't have, you know, the nice, we don't have the Nord boards. We don't have these great things that, you know, some other facilities might be using. Um, the timing gates we have, we'll utilize once, once a week probably. Um, and just thinking of, you know, application, we got 30, 35 dudes in a session. Right. And it's like, okay, how many, how many times can I get all these dudes through this one gate? So there's the ideal world and then there's real world. Right. So, you know, that we will post COVID times, we're getting surveys every day. We'll do the just jump very frequently. So th these post COVID times are going to be a little more unique, but uh, our group sizes have to be smaller. So I'll probably use the timing systems a little more, uh, you know, probably, probably every speed session that we get. And then, you know, just like, just like in the weight room, right. It's similar on the field. There's so many different factors that go into what could potentially be breaking down that individual athlete and understanding like, Hey, he dropped a, a sprint time. Was it a technical issue? Right. Or was it, I know, uh, Dan path goes into technical versus mechanical faults. Like you can't fix a mechanical fault with a technical cue. So what I mean by that is if his hip flexor is locked up or is, or he slept on his neck weird and his upper trap is like right next to his ear. Right. I can't fix that with saying, Hey, fix your arms. I have, to, you have to manual therapy, like go in there and hit some trigger points. Um, so there's the difference between technical versus mechanical is huge as well in that. Yeah. It's crazy. Like every question introduces another layer of complexity in programming. Ah, it's simple. It is like, it's, it's as simple in like sort of this kaleidoscope way. If you could look through all the lenses and actually see what the objective outcome is. It's well, really cause it, it it's great because everything you talked about was a different layer and a different dimension, right? Like from periodization, uh, a cell max V it's like, okay, from breaking down sports, it's like, whoa, okay. Like well, I went through door one. Then you asked me to go through two more doors. And I went through one of those doors. Now one of these doors had three more options. It's like, are you running in sand? You running on grass? You running on, uh, you running on turf, you running on Mondo, right? Like, okay, that's, I'm running through door two and I have door through two a through D but I can backpedal now and at the same time have to and simultaneously look at like, okay, what are like the underlying mechanics? What are, what are the marching drills we're going to do? Or what are, how long do we need to spend on this person like on the ground? Well, what's their sport? Are, do they, are they ever going to be entering into that? Would they benefit from the adaptations given at that 20, 25 yard mark of max V? Like, so it's, it's funny because I mean, you're like, you're so good at it that you're like, oh, it's easy. Yeah, here, here, let me just let me just draw you a real picture, and you just yeah. like Jackson Pollock all this shit, shit. And you're like, that's fucking beautiful. That's Simple. beautiful. I love that. Simply put, run fast, right? Run fast and rest. Like Tony Holler feed <clears throat> Tony Holler feed the cats is like, hey, run fast and rest your guys. Don't do it that much. Like, and that's a super simplistic, rudimentary way to look at it, right? But like, that's what we're doing. Uh, um, and then you got to like with it, with track. That's you know that's one thing, but with football, like shoulder neck right change direct like there's so many other like 500 different rabbit holes we could dive down to and nca only gives us eight hours so that's not great right. and i but, think of like you know you showing up with the with the speed gates pre-covid times and the that practice ending with your truck with the headlights on because it's fucking 10 p.m at night trying to get everyone through the gates right because i think football too brings with it such a unique 
variable in, a, in applicability where training economy as a strength and conditioning coach is something that really has you jettisoning a lot of these scientific principles or really honing them in because it's like, I mean, I was rugby was a bit smaller, so I didn't have to worry about it as much, especially when we were looking at sevens. But like, you know, I was in, I, Nicolini took me out to the Niner Stadium and I was walking through Jurassic Park where like, it's rare for me to walk in and be a small guy in a room. And like, I'm walking <laughs> through this fucking thing. I was like, what the fuck do you do with 50 of these guys? There's 60 of these guys. Practice squad. Like, I think preseason, there may have been 60 or 70 guys in there. I was like, how do you really take anything like from research and application? Like, it does have to be at a certain point. Like, all right, run fast and rest. Fucking yeah. cock the hammer, hit the nail, go. Like, because it's just, it's over. I don't think people respect. Like, I, I feel like a bouncer with a clipboard when I was in there. Cause like I gotta tell all of these big guys what to do. Fuck yeah. this! It's a nightmare. Especially at that level, like you, you, those are all Ferraris. You better have a good plan for each Ferrari because each one is different. But time is our most valuable asset. And you know we touched on earlier. Like I can develop aerobic capacity by walking on a treadmill. Is that my most beneficial and like effective use of that time? Absolutely not. Like develop aerobic capacity. Maybe I want to touch on ground uh, shoulder contacts or. Um, running techniques. So that's where like, Hey, you can knock out two birds with one stone. I'm going to hit tempo runs for our skill guys and I'm going to make a multi-directional. So I now am laying down different fascial lines that aren't just linear, right? With my bigs, I'm doing, um, you know, like we talked about a lot of change direction. I'm gonna throw the weight vest on and make them do inchworms, right? I'm going to get my aerobic capacity and my work capacity, but I'm going to develop a lot of other qualities along with it. So when we understand, Hey, I have eight hours and like I'm handcuffed to that. And maybe the football coach now wants to come here and say, Tuck, we need an hour of film. Hey, coach, thanks, man. What, you need anything else? Like, there's so many different factors that you have to, that you have to take into account. And it, it, it just is a creativity deal. Like, get, get really good at those scientific principles that you touched on and then paint your picture. What do you value? Have a system to value it. And everything comes back to our Charlie Francis high-low CNS model. And then we can do 500 different things under that umbrella, but we're still going to fall under that umbrella. Yeah, and that was one thing I wanted, really wanted to get your opinion on, and you touched on it there, was you know, the utilization of change of direction, not only in like a, like a, from a vector standpoint of like, look, we can actually change the direction of force that's being applied and start to look at fascial lines, but is it a way now to like almost attenuate the programming, if that's the right word? Like, you know, we can use change of direction to keep them, to keep the foot off the throttle right? To keep them away from some of that. Like if I need to periodize around like, you know, fatigue, how is it that you use change of direction from a sports specificity standpoint of like, look, you know, these guys are going to be running slants, they're going to be cutting, they're going to be reacting. How do I, like, how do you, how do you use change of direction with speed from a, from a mechanical like direction of force, like, okay, fascial lines, but also from like, look, programming and, and mitigating or exacerbating stress. Yeah. And so you touched on sports specificity. So if I have camp in August, right. And I'm still doing five, 10, five cone drills at the end of July, I'm missing the boat, right? We got to bridge the gap. So we do a lot of open field reactive stuff based on the athletes, right? A lot less cone drills, a lot less coaching intensive, the closer we get the season. I want them to experiment. I want them to go through the observe, orient, decide, act loop. I want to put them in open field situations and make them make decisions because 
the first time that safety has an open field opportunity to make a tackle, I mean, we don't tackle our guys, but shouldn't be the, the second week in pads, right? Because now his learning curve has to be super steep before week one. Um, so understanding we put them in those situations frequently and then say your go-to move as a running back is a spin move. I might put the constraint on you, right? Constraints-based learning. You can either constrain the person, the environment, or the task. So if your go-to move is a spin move, I'll say, yo, no spin moves. And then I'll get a, like a lip smack. Yo, Coach Tuck, what the hell? Um, but now as we bring it back, like I'm now placing an, an additional constraint on that person to make him utilize a different technique. So we look at when we look at constraints-based learning, as we get closer and closer to season, that environment, the person, and the task are three things we're constrained. So the environment would be like small field to big field, right? Two, maybe one-on-one to two-on-two. I'm adding a different layer of complexity to it. So I don't want to jump into seven-on-seven in August or 11-on-11 in August while doing while prepping them with five, ten, fives, and L drills, right? So we can, like, there's a time and place for that in the Januaries and the early, early off season, the teaching. And that's the beautiful thing about college is I have months where NFL has weeks. Um, so, you know, the, like you said, there, the, everything, everything depends on and everything has a factor that alters it. It's just hilarious because every question ends with like context and, you know, a, a, a simplification of a theory, but then it's also on the leading edge of that answer is like a new model and a new layer, right? Because I love, like, I love the constraints model. And this is something that I took from Schles and I think it's fucking amazing. And I use it from a therapy standpoint, like Schles taught me this. So shout out, Corey. He's like, give me your five favorite therapies. So some guys are in the Normatech, some guys are in the infrared, some guys are in the, 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 the plunge pools or whatever. Uh, some guys are doing float tanks. And in the off season, he takes away the top three. Yep. He's like, you can only do if ice bath and fucking aerodyne or whatever, your favorite methods of recovery, that's what are your least favorite methods of those five. You're fine. I don't want to see you in an infrared. I don't want to see you on, in the boots. I don't want to see you this and you off. We'll see us save those strong cards for the season. So like right. the constraints model of learning for an athlete and like, you know, you, you challenge yourself with doing like, I'm driving on the other side of the road at the moment, which is holy fucking constraints model. Hey, don't go in the lane that you're really used to going into because you're going to go right down the barrel of a Subaru. Like, okay, that's a constraint, right? So I think it's, again, I just another layer. But at the end of the day, like, like you kind of like, uh, it's almost jokingly saying now, like it is just, you know, it does depend. It depends on any number of 500 plus different variables but you know the objective outcome is still the same run fast rest right like that's really what it comes down to and and i think as as you know you and i have conversations we we often leave with a lot more questions than answers and hopefully um it's just kind of eye-opening to how much is out there and you know there are really no simple answers right because uh, oh run fast and do this well what about that what about and and you, you mentioned like when is when is a good time to expose them to max velocity upright sprinting you know, I said sooner rather than later, but then somebody's gonna be like, oh, Tuck said sooner rather than later. Week two, let's put everybody through the gauntlet and then, then I'm an asshole, right? So it, it really depends and you gotta, you gotta sit on, sit on that, that spectrum and, and realize, okay, I gotta provide a stimulus and I can't be on wall drills the, for, for the next six, eight weeks, but I also can't have a guy uh, heel kicking his T-spine because he's so backside and he's spending an eternity on the ground, right? And you see him, you see him across team sport, right? You see him across team sport. They, 
they show up day one coach i ran track or, or and it's like dude you i could not see a human hip extend that far for that long while your heel almost kicked the back of your neck but here we are so you know you got to mitigate the 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 risk factor while still providing a stimulus and that's going to be unique to everybody's standpoint i think the craziest thing when you learn sprint mechanics is you can you can never not see it right like it's when i first like like looked at gait cycle just from like a like a you know like a postural quality postural standpoint and like got into cairo school i just started watching everyone walk and i was like holy ankle burners like how are these duck walking people still like how do they still have anterior tallow fibs and I'm just like, now with sprinting, it's really easy actually when you watch football because it's like the guy crossing the line is you know usually more upright and the, all the guys chasing him are that T-spine heel extension. Like I got some old videos of like OJ, um, you know, say what you want about his extracurriculars. He was a damn good fucking sprinter on the field, right? So you're like watching OJ and you're watching people trying to chase him. And they're like literally kicking themselves in the back of the head. You're like, maybe I shouldn't run like that guy. Maybe I should probably try and run more like that guy. No doubt. And and one thing I picked up from uh, Dan, I mean, I, I obviously just shout him out every every chance I get, is is showing film backwards. So like you can coach his eye, right? Like you can you can take the side view, you can take the front view, you can take the back view. Like and a lot of coaches stay on the side view. And it's like, hey, look at him. I want you sprinting directly at me for 30. I want to stand behind you and see how you do. I'm going to film you. And then let's play the tape backwards. And, and like, it's kind of, it's really interesting. Like, I just started diving into that. And it's like, whoa, you see a lot of stuff. Um, so that, w- that was pretty cool to, to dive into recently. Well, let's talk about sprint timer, man. Like, I feel like I could have you on the phone all day and just pick your brain just for my own, my own, uh, my own selfish reasons. But talk to me about sprint timer. Talk to me about a bit of the program. I and mean, we've, we've clearly like opened up the hood and like, cause at the end of the day, a good program to me is like, it's sophisticated, but it's outward facing surface is very simple. Like it's reps and sets in, in the case of like, you know, conventional weight training. Tell me about like, you know, how you develop it, why you develop it, who's it for, what's it entail? Yeah, no. So, so sprint timber, like everybody's heard of squattober, right? And Sorenex and it, it's just, and sprint timber, September and sprinting, right? It, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's pretty, it's pretty basic. I had a bunch of t-shirts made, um, but you know, it'll be fun. It's going to be an interactive educational month of sprinting. So it's going to be conversations like this. It's going to be articles, you know, coming out and it's just, Hey, let, let's grow as a, as an industry and try and mitigate kind of the stuff that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Cause you don't have to be a sprint expert to say for me to say, Hey, when was the last time you ran 53 yards, touched the line with your hand and ran back in a game? Well, never. So then why would you train it? Right? So when we, when we go back to this like sprint timber model, it's I'm going to provide a beginner program and a more advanced program for completely for free. Um, you know, and it's, and everything will be hyperlinked and it's just going to be exactly what you just said. It'll be outwardly reps and sets and all this stuff and drills and things like that to kind of improve, um, everybody's sprint mechanics and, and hopefully speed, right? Like a way to experiment on yourself, on your athletes and getting everybody faster, um, I think is really important. And then we, I mean, we kind of touched on, you know, all the importance in this podcast, which, um, you know, hopefully didn't fall on deaf ears and hopefully I provided some answers amidst, you know, the sea of questions that I opened up, but, um, you know, anybody's feel, feel free to reach out to me if they have any other, you know, further questions, um, I'd be more than happy to answer them. Yeah. I'll link everything up in the show notes, man. Cause like when I listen to you talk about sprinting, I feel 
like it, it's really educational for me obviously like on the actual technical aspect as i sit on the like i sit at a lower branch trying to reach up to your level and just like trying to like get as much out of you as i can but also just from like i feel like the way i'm looking at you when you're giving me these answers is the way people look at me when i give them answers about like barbell training and stuff and like shoulder mechanics and shit it's like this is like my jaw is kind of dropping. Like, okay, I'm like, I'm going to listen to this again and take notes on this because, well, it's my podcast and I can do this before other people release it uh, or before other people listen to it. But I think it's such proof of concept of the necessity of, you know, that deeper level understanding, right? Like to me, listening to this podcast and then looking at the program, the program, like you can almost see the moves, right? Which is really cool. Like I, I, I compare it to like a, like a magician, like imagine like, you know, knowing how David Blaine does all this crazy shit, you can see, you know, like when someone sees reps and sets, but you listen to this podcast, you can actually look through this kaleidoscope of adaptations and be like, well, oh, okay, wow, okay, we're doing this distance at this time where we're using this external resistance at this max V day to attenuate. Like, it's not just arbitrary, right? Because unless you look under the hood, you know, most people are just, they're, they're, they're putting out a product that's not necessarily like finely tuned. But it really takes like, uh, yeah, I have friends who are into wine or into coffee, and it really takes a lot of exposure to really start to respect the nuances in a well-tailored program. And I think one thing that has been continuously over time uh, has gone through like, or has, hasn't gone through sort of like an enlightenment or an enrichment or a refinement process has been sprinting. Yet it's something that is the cornerstone of almost every single professional sport strength and conditioning program that I can think of. Yeah. And, and no, I appreciate the kind words. And when, when, and we've talked about this, I'm like, bro, you got to slow down. Like you, you had, like you had me lost at hip flexor, brother. Like <laughs> you got to slow down. So I try and, you know, I might reread the same page of a book 18 times, but then I got to be like, all right, how do I make that big word? Now, how do I just make it one word apply to the athlete and, and, and go right. Cause all that, all that info is great. But if, you know, people look at you like you got two heads, then they didn't take anything away. So I try and make stuff actionable and, and simple because I don't consider myself overly smart. So I think that's how I learn it the, the, the best, but um, yeah. So I think, I think like you mentioned, you know, people argue, Oh, we get fashion in the weight room. It's like, okay, well we touch on the bar speed factor. It's nowhere near the rate of force development on the field. Right. Oh, well, you know, I want my guys working hard. Well, that's great for the adaptation that you're going to elicit. Like the stimuli of repeated sprints is great for getting really good at running 80%. It's not as good in some recent research um, in the aerobic versus high CNS. So like the high output of max velocity sprinting and the base of the aerobic recovery. So now we get an energy system. So I think it's, I think it's super important. And then, Hey coach, we don't, we don't run 30 yards in a game. Well, that's great. But if I can get you faster at 30, who's going to be faster at 15? Probably dudes faster at 30. Right. So, you know, we don't, we don't isolate one, one element. I think it's all encompassing and you know, the barbell work, especially the stuff that you do, I've learned a ton from. So trying to implement that within sprinting to assist sprinting, not to deter from it is a whole nother thing that we could spend two hours on. Um, I'm sure. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think very simply, right. Run fast, right. Rest in between and on your rest days, don't let that day ruin the next day. So I'm going to prime myself up for those quote unquote money days, those high CNS days. So as simple I, as I, I 
I think knowing our audience, a lot of them are coaches. I think you're hitting, you're, you're telling them exactly what they need to hear from both angles, which is like from a technical standpoint, you're having them drink from a fire hose. It's like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to put it all out there and you absorb as much as you can, but you can go back, right? Like there's, I would say there is 20 or 30 points in my head that I've made that are very worthy YouTube, Google search, PubMed rabbit holes that could be explored. So your podcast, it's, it's indexed, it's collated, it's cached, it's going to be there. Go back, listen to it again. But I think on the flip side, not to be discounted from that, because I know a lot of people that listen to us are fucking nerds like us, but people, like I always say, like I'd rather help people than be right. And the way you help people is like, hey, fucking in this case, when you're dealing with those, those college kids, like cock the hammer, hit the nail, like let's go, right? So you're understanding the difference between the scientific programming, but the application and coaching, I think is something that needs to remain in fine balance because it's cool to riff on, you know, the deep level stuff you're going into. But at the same time, every single time you added like an extra dimension of inception where i'm like oh i have no idea where i am you also brought it back every single time to like all right let's application this is what we're really trying to do right so there is all this cool shit which i think coaches if you're if you're not well versed in sprinting like it's a very powerful tool um and, and it's something that is endlessly complex and it's worth knowing the science but also respecting the application is something that i think like you did like a really great job and be able to bring both to the table and if you have some more hours in the future man i'd love to have you on and then talk about concurrent training in the weight room like people are going to think of like oh like you know he's a sprint coach it's like no no, he's a he's a performance coach and he uses sprinting as a tool in concurrent programming with not only the stress in the weight room but also the incurred stress of practice on the field which is like now all of a sudden we're playing 7d chess here which yeah. is and at the end of the day on a program you're going to see reps and sets yeah no, hundred percent. And, you know, just like in the weight room with a, a barbell athlete, right? That the stress is, is holistic. Everything you have to take into account. So guess what? If you did 10 by 10 RDL on Monday, Tuesday's probably not a great day to sprint. Right. And these coaches will go in and be like, Oh, we value speed and we value the field work. Well then why is your split seven hours in the weight room, one hour in the field or six hours in the weight room, six, two hours in the field. Like we sprint, we're on the field, not sprint every day. We're on the field for an hour every day before we lift. And we still got dudes who are strong. We still got dudes who squat 600. Like it's just a lot more technical. And I care a lot more about transfer. Like, again, if you squat 600 pounds, that's awesome. But if you can't get in and out of your breaks as a DB or wideout, it's irrelevant. You are not getting on the field. You are of no use. You're, you're, you're going to be upset because you can't play and you're going to be of no use to the team. So transfer is king. Learn skill is king. I can get you strong doing single leg squats. I can, I can, we get, we get, you can do the Hatfield hand supported, right? 550, 700 see, on, say, on single leg. Like the tissue adaptation is super important there. Like a barbell athlete, you have very specific guidelines you have to meet and you have to be strong in those specific guidelines. I just got to get you strong, right? To a point. They're, strong is strong enough. Like getting a, a, a wide out from 600 to 605 on the back squat ain't helping his game. Like it's not. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I, I can squat six and I'm sitting on my, I'm sitting on the sidelines. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not playing no, no, no division ball anywhere in the NCAA. Nose guard, um, right? Hey? Maybe nose guard, right? Yeah. No water boy, I think yes. is where I'm at now. I'm getting fucking old, man. Um, but dude, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate this. I'm going to put all the sprint timber stuff up. I'm going to have this up. I might put, I'm going to shuffle this to the top of the deck so people can get on board. I think coaches, this is, 
the most underutilized, poorly understood tool in the toolbox. And I think no one really brings it. The springs in the science understands the history. I mean, you're talking Ken, you're talking Speed City, uh, you know, you're talking uh, Derek Hansen, you're talking Charlie Francis, and then you're also talking. All right, this is real world experience from you know uh, a collegiate strength conditioning coach who has the the tangible sort of scientific information, but also the real world application. Um, so where where do people find you? I'll put it all in the intro too, as I hype you up without your humble ass cutting me off. Uh, but where do people find the info for you on socials, wherever, and the stuff for Sprint Tober or sorry, Sprint Timber? A fucking sore <laughs> next, man. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's uh, I hate social media, but I, it's such a good tool, and like somebody made it for me, and I was like, good. I'll never use it. And now I post all the time because I'm in quarantine and I'm bored. But um, it, it's been awesome. I probably connected with over a hundred coaches in just a couple months of me having it, um, just because I decided to post, you know, maybe once a, once every other day or something, but. Instagram, Tucker Mike 43. Um, you know, that's somewhere where you can find me. And then, um, you know, the Sprint Timber stuff is on justsprint.com. So that's launching, uh, you know, in the next couple of days, but just, just dash sprint.com. Pretty, pretty simple, right? Like, again, keep it simple, stupid. Um, you know, I, I try and always, you know, revert back. All right, how can I implement it? How can I do all this stuff? But feel free to reach out. Like you said, well, I'd rather, you know, help someone than, than be right. So I love having these conversations with you. I always pick something up and, you know, having thoughtful conversations is kind of what makes this, this, you know, field progress. And I always find myself asking more questions and being wrong a lot more than I am right when I'm talking to coaches like yourself. So I really appreciate you having me on today. No, nah, dude, it's been awesome. It's good to, good to reconnect. Crazy to see where, like where you've come from, like since, since the San Jose days and, and, and talking to you a little bit before, kind of like what's in the pipe in the future, man. I I'm dead set on doing this again. would love to have you back on. Um, you know, if you, if you have the time and we could talk a little bit more, I know a lot of our audience is, is much more captive in the, in the strength conditioning field. And you're definitely someone who's had a huge, huge impact on me and, you know, you and Gary and Nicolini are out doing like great things. So I appreciate what you should do, man. Uh, I want to get that posting frequency up to once a day, maybe twice a day. So do, do bug, do bug killer Mike in the DM to get him to post more because everything he puts out is gold. That's so good. thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah. And I'll, I'll link everything up in the show notes. All right, man. Sounds good. Appreciate you.